Hello, everyone. I'm Asim Shukla. And I'm Ted Joya. And this is another episode of If You'll Indulge Me. Now, today's topic is curry. But our first question was, what is curry? Not everyone agrees. So, we took this question to the streets. What is curry? What is curry? Yes. Curry? Like food-wise? Yes. What is curry? Yeah. You're going to record me? Curry? Curry. Curry? Curry? Oh my god, the pressure. Well, there is Stephen Curry. A basketball player. Steph Curry? Steph Curry? When, I, when you say curry, I think of Steph Curry. It's a spice, right? Indian spice? Deliciousness, yummy goodness. Curry? I don't yes. like curry. It's a, it's a spice mix, uh, which means different things in different regions of India. What is curry? Okay. Food. <laughs> like yellow shit with vegetables in it. Stuff my mom makes that she force fed me because I wanted a hamburger when I was growing up. It's something you prefix with a color. A saucy broth. A flavorful sauce. I really enjoy it with rice. It's very healthy, but it smells too strong for me. Japanese curry is very different than Indian curry, which is very different than Vietnamese. Curry is comfort food. A thick stew-like liquid. Um, but like, what's the distinction between a curry and a stew? Great food, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Pepper and spice and everything nice? No, I don't know. Should I answer that? It's, it's, a, it's a generic name for Indian style food given by ignorant Britishers. Yeah, I don't know, I got nothing. Well, doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus there. No, yeah. That last answer, I got nothing, is probably the most accurate answer of the bunch, actually. <laughs> the most honest answer. At least the most honest. I must admit, this exercise hasn't really clarified much, has it? No, not really. So, I guess I turn the question back to you. What is curry? You're, you're asking me because I'm Indian. Guilty as charged. Okay, well then, I'm going to rant for a second. You know, the concept doesn't even exist in Indian cooking. It's hard to know how to begin even to apply it. Like, sure, chicken tikka masala, that's curry. Definitely. But is, like, a spicy rice dish a curry? Is a dry sautéed spinach or, like, a fried okra or a cold yogurt relish a curry? Like, how could all of these things fall under the same umbrella? So I think when you start to poke around, the term just seems more and more absurd. Are you suggesting, Asim Shukla, it's absurd to summarize a half continent of cooking with only five letters? <laughs> yes. What kind of American are you? A hyphenated one. <laughs> I just cannot resist a hyphen joke. Okay, but for real, Ted, if we're doing this podcast about curry, we need some working definitions. So here's my proposed definition of curry. Okay. A term for an Asian sauced dish that Western people can't describe. Literally an indescribable Asian dish. <laughs> uh, well, I have a more technical definition. Unsurprising. So I think curry is either A, a dish based on a thick, creamy, heavily spiced sauce, or okay. B, it's any kind of dish that happens to contain some supposedly Indian spices, like cumin or turmeric or whatever. In other words, it's both a genre of dish and a type of flavor. So in this episode... We'll test these working definitions as we explore all dimensions of all things curry. First, we'll discuss where curry came from, both the recipe and the word. Second, we'll explore where curry has migrated around the world. And third and finally, 
We'll debate what it all means. Before we delve into the muddled history of the word curry, let's get some background context about where it came from. Indian cuisine. So, Asim, uh, give, us, give us a culinary tour of India. Well, I'll just start by saying that what most of us think of as quote-unquote Indian food, mm-hmm. you know, the butter chicken, naan, dal, yeah. makhani, all that sort of thing, is really a particular style of haute cuisine from northwestern India. Oh, fascinating. Go. Uh, okay, so Punjab uh, and the Northwest in general have a tradition of richer, butterier, creamier mm-hmm. dishes. They make heavier use of strongly flavored things like meat, garlic, onions. This is the only place where traditionally you see cream or cheese being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the most similar to what you would see in a stereotypical Indian restaurant. Uh, in like the center and the north, uh, the food is a lot less rich, much heavier on vegetables and pulses. This is what I like to call the dal belt. <laughs> Western India is more arid than other parts, which influences their crops. Uh, one region there in particular, Gujarat, is famous for its fried snacks and also notorious for using more sugar than anybody else. So you can think of it as the junk food capital of India. Uh, the South is very much its own thing, super diverse, but in general, it's very heavy on rice, including dishes made from like fermented rice-based flour. Uh, they use a lot of coconut, and then maybe most memorably, they definitely have the spiciest food in India. The spicy South. The spicy South. Uh, and then finally, the East... Uh, The East is very wet, so their food is much soupier as a rule, uh, lots of freshwater fish, and also, unrelatedly, very nice desserts. Ah. Mm. So what is common? Like, what generalities can we make about Indian food, if any? (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, I, I think we can say a few things. First, cooking methods. Second, the abundance of produce. Mm -hmm. And third, the importance of dairy. So in terms of cooking methods, across the subcontinent, most cooking is done in pots and pans. Even flatbread is traditionally made like on a flat pan over a stove. Not a lot of baking or roasting over an open fire. I mean, regionally, sure, but mostly not. And this lends itself to dishes of varying soupiness. Uh, The second thing I'd say is India's climate sustains the cultivation of lots of produce and spices year-round. And this has allowed India to sustain vegetarianism throughout the subcontinent for a really long time. Yeah, I guess it would be harder to be a vegetarian in Ireland. Right. (laughs) Not a lot of, like, you know, vegetarian religious sects arising, you know, on the Emerald Isle. (laughs) Anyway, uh, and so the third point is that dairy is very important. But the most common dairy products are yogurt and clarified butter, or ghee. Yeah, which is pretty different from many other dairy-rich cuisines, certainly from Europe. Uh, And actually, cheese is uh, not a big part of Indian cuisine, except, uh, you know, paneer in Punjab, because traditionally there's actually a strong taboo against deliberately curdling milk. Hmm. And that has to do with sort of the religious significance of milk and dairy products in Hinduism. So from this incredible diversity, we somehow end up with this single word, curry. Yes. How did this happen? Let me tell you a tale. Ah, the history of the word curry. So, the most widely held theory is that the word curry has its roots in a bastardized form of the Tamil word kari. Historically, when the Portuguese first came to India, they coined the word karal, borrowed from the Tamil word kari to describe the kind of local dishes. To add even more ambiguity to the tale, though, because Tamil has two distinct R sounds, there are actually two words that might have yielded the Portuguese word karal. So one of the words means to blacken, and the other word means to bite. So the Portuguese, the colonizers, 
famed sensitive ear to local languages, <laughs> combined all of them into a catch-all term for everything the native Indians ate. Then, the English word curry was born when the British East India Company came to the subcontinent in the early 1600s, and the British took the Portuguese word carl and converted it to, ding, 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 curry. Mm. But to add even another extra layer of confusion to an already confusing tale, the word curry echoes an earlier English word. Technically, the first appearance of the word curry in the English language goes back to the 14th century when King Richard II summoned hundreds of cooks and philosophers to produce the first English cookery book. The book's title, The Form of Curry. Though none of the recipes had anything in common with what we now view as an Indian curry, the old English word was used to describe kind of cuisine in general. So you're saying that in some ways this word curry or something like it had sort of always been there, you know, waiting in the wings for its big entrance. Exactly. Well, let me add even more confusion to this picture. So first I would like to inform you that there is actually a real North Indian dish called kadhi which is indeed a saucy and spicy dish, but of a very specific type. Gadis are based on chickpea flour and yogurt. Second alternate theory. You know how I mentioned that most cooking in India gets done on a, like a wide pot or a pan? Well, in much of North India, the word for that cooking implement is karahi. <laughs> and so both of these could also potentially be explanations for where curry comes from. So in summary, after hours of research, we've concluded we don't know where it comes from. Correct. We do not. But... I think it's fair to say that the concept of quote-unquote curry is basically a British invention. And it's really in Britain where the idea of what we think of as curry today really grew up. I think that's fair. So let us segue to do a tour of curry around the world, and we can start, as you say, with the country that invented the word, Britain. Here we go. Curry was probably introduced to British cooking in the early 17th century, uh, after the British East India Company began operations. And we see the first recipe in English published in Hannah Gloss's 1758 cookbook, The Art of Cookery. And one of my favorite phrases, to make a curry the Indian way. Apparently the Indian way is using pepper and coriander seeds, which are the only spices called for in this uh, curry seasoning. Only pepper and coriander? Just those two. What else could you need? That's cute. Well, this was the start of a very long and proud tradition, it sounds like, of British people ripping off Indian dishes into almost unrecognizable form. And my favorite of these dishes is this thing called kedgeri. What's kedgeri? Uh, it was based off an Indian dish called kichiri, which itself is a thin, lightly spiced sort of soup of rice and dal. And what did this become? Well, in Britain, this became a breakfast dish of rice, mm-hmm. flaked fish, Boiled eggs, Oof. curry powder, oh, of course, butter, butter, and raisins. Uh, I guess the the classic raisin and fish breakfast, <laughs> right? But I think what this dish highlights is that since curry's arrival, Indian cooking has continuously been a major, even an integral part of the proud British cuisine. Mm. Indian influence is so ingrained that when the English were looking for a celebratory dish to mark Queen Elizabeth II's ascension to the throne in 1953, they hit upon the Indian-inspired coronation chicken to commemorate the event. What is coronation chicken? A mixture of cold, pre-cooked chicken, herbs, curry powder, and mayonnaise. Whew. Not exactly a combination that summons visions of royalty. Uh, we shall celebrate the ascension of the queen of the realm 
defender of the faith with mayonnaise and cold chicken. (laughs) So when I say a major part of British cuisine, I mean such a major part that when the English people reached for national identity, they turned to curry. Many polls and even a government minister list chicken tikka masala as Britain's national dish. Hmm. Well, yeah, I think in the UK, quote unquote, going out for a curry, especially after carousing on like a Friday or Saturday night, has really become a thing. And these so-called curry houses are like Tex-Mex places in the US. Just like you can get nachos anywhere here, you can get butter chicken anywhere in Britain. It's ubiquitous and mediocre. Ubiquitous and mediocre. Uh, Isn't that the motto of Chevy's? It very well could be. (laughs) Should be, should be. But more importantly, even as the idea of curry crystallized in the British mind, the British were also simultaneously broadening the world of curry through the trade links of the British Empire. So what do I mean by this? Well, after abolishing slavery in 1833, the British impressed a million indentured servants from India to fill the gap in labor abroad. And that meant Indian food, that is say curry, spread to very far-flung places across the world. I'm talking like Sri Lanka, Singapore, the West Indies, South Africa, Malaysia, Mauritius, Fiji, the list goes on. Anyway, these servants brought their spices with them, inspiring some very unusual new local curries. So for example, in Trinidad, there's this dish called basap shut, which is named after curry served with shredded roti. And this shredded roti looked like a torn or busted up Shirt. Ah. Yes. And then in South Africa, one of the most famous local curry dishes is something called bunny chow, which is a meat curry served inside a hollowed out loaf of white bread. Bizarre. Is it named for bunnies? It looks like, or is that what rabbits eat? Uh, it, the answer is less cute. It's named after the bunnias, which is a caste of merchants from northern India. Uh, social caste doesn't make as cute a name as fluffy animals. No. Fortunately. Uh, So it seems that curry is a truly global dish, the first fusion food, if you will. And there's this recurring pattern where as curry is adapted in various countries, it pushes those countries to reevaluate their own cuisine. Yeah, and in fact, contact with the new British concept of curry actually led some countries to reevaluate their own cuisine and even retroactively label some of their traditional dishes as curry. And the best example of this is in Southeast Asia. People in Southeast Asia have been eating soupy, coconut milk-based stews with rice for centuries. But about 200 years ago, they started calling these stews curries. I see. For example, dishes called Thai curries in the West are actually called in the Thai language kaing, a word I'm almost certainly mispronouncing. How's it spelled? K-A-E-N-G. Kaing. And that word, kind of loosely defined, means a watery dish served with rice and refers to any liquid seasoned with a paste. But the Thai language has its own separate word for curry, kari, which refers to recipes that use curry powder. Got it. So this sets up a striking class of culinary terms. Case in point, the Thai yellow curry is also called kaing kari, literally curry curry. Because it is the one type of Thai curry that actually is adapted from Anglo-Indian cuisine and uses curry powder. See, this is great. I love this. The Thai people have these two distinct terms for both of the definitions of curry that we set up at the beginning of this episode. 
they have one word for the soupy, spicy stew thing, and another for the flavor or spice profile created by curry powder. And with something like kainkari, we actually see both of these terms used in a complementary way. See, we English speakers could learn a lot from this. But we won't. <laughs> because English speakers are the folks who invented the single word curry for all of Indian cuisine to begin with. But we see a similar linguistic culture class even in India, right? Isn't there a plant called a curry leaf that wasn't always called that? Yeah, so curry leaves are a traditional culinary leaf mostly used in South India, which grows on what is called in English a curry tree. Huh. Does it taste like curry? Not at all. <laughs> it is a vegetal, <laughs> aromatic flavor. Yeah, and from what I've read, the name curry leaf was probably applied retroactively. So, with a strange kind of symmetry, curry has even found its way back into India's lexicon. Well, and, and not just the lexicon. It's important to remember that Indian food had no kidney beans, potatoes, tomatoes, or even chili peppers until the New World was discovered. So India's famously hot and spicy food would not have been possible without international trade. So, in a bizarre way, one might say that the British trade empire is responsible for the creation of what we view as, quote-unquote, authentic Indian cuisine today. I think that's right. Huh. So it turns out that the legacy of empire is not just the creation of this concept called curry, but also it gave curry wings. And, and when you give something wings, you can't exactly tell where it's going to fly. And you might say curry has flown to some pretty strange places. Right. So, to close out our exploration of curry outside of India, we want to share two more stories. The first is in post-World War II Germany. The year, 1949. <laughs> the place, Berlin. The landscape is grim. Food is scarce and of low quality. Enter Hertha Heuvel, the <laughs> owner of a street-side food stall who came upon a big idea. The story is that she bartered with occupying British soldiers for curry powder, which she then mixed with ketchup on top of sliced grilled bratwurst, and thus the pan-German culinary sensation now known as currywurst was born. What could be a better parable for curry's flexibility? But I think we can agree the best story of curry going international is in Japan. Yes, I think this is my single favorite example. So now, the year is 1872. The Meiji Restoration has just taken place. Japan has ended its centuries-long policy of isolation. Enter the British. I detect a theme with the British. It's almost like they have an international trade empire. So. <laughs> but uh, with the British came curry, which spread throughout Japan like wildfire. Soon the Japanese army and navy adopted it as a sort of convenient staple meal, huh. which meant that conscripts from even the remotest country villages experience the dish. Fast forward to the present, curry is one of the most popular dishes in Japan, where people eat it on average 78 times a year. It's usually eaten as kare raisu, curry, rice, usually fried meat, and often pickled vegetables served on the same plate, and interestingly, eaten with a spoon, not chopsticks. You know, I can actually attest to that personally. Huh. So in sixth grade, I did an exchange program in Japan with a Japanese family. My host mom tried feeding me some meatless Japanese curry. Well, I told her that it reminded me of Indian food. And she was surprised by that because for her, this was just one of the dishes in her repertoire. Uh, actually, it makes a lot of sense because the Japanese originally thought of curry as a Western dish. 
since it was, you know, introduced by white British people. <laughs> and in Japan, curry was classified as part of yoshoku, meaning Western food. Wow, that's incredible. So curry has gone around the world so many times that in less than 200 years, it has plausibly become a food of the West. So, so let's take a step back. You know, we've traced curry from its humble Indian origins to its rise to a global superpower. And now that we've surveyed all the evidence, let's take a moment to actually discuss what it all means. So let's see. I have a question. How do you feel about the word curry, you know, as an Indian American? Do you use it? Do you resent it? So I both use it and resent it. Huh. <laughs> on, uh, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I do use it according to my first definition that I gave. It's a spiced, wet, gravy-based dish. On the other hand, I really don't like it when it's used in an irresponsible and kind of sloppy way. I hate it when people say things like, did you eat a lot of curry growing up? (laughs) What does that mean? What do you mean when you say something like that? Do you even know what you mean when you ask a question like that? (laughs) The answer is they definitely don't know what they mean. But what's more is they probably don't care. Exactly. I don't like how this word curry gets to be the way that people mask their lack of knowledge or curiosity about Indian food. So why don't we know more specific terms for Indian cuisine, like we do for, like, Mexican food or something? Well, I think that the people who have been exposed to Indian food do know these terms. Like, they know what a raita or a bangan bharta or an alu gopi are. The same way that they know what a mole is on a Mexican menu or sashimi is on a Japanese menu. So I guess for me, that's the wrong question. Hmm. Because we still use this one catch-all word, curry, which isn't well-defined. That's what's interesting to me. So why do they do that? I mean, I'll admit, guilty as charged. I don't say, let's go out for doll, you know? Let's go to the the doll house. Everyone's favorite Ibsen-themed Indian restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, I think the real answer is it's just because that word has stuck around from when British people invented it. It is a historically ingrained ignorance, you might say. But not just ignorance, but indifference. Right, and even if people today are not so ignorant or indifferent, you could say they've inherited the ignorant language of people before them. And if that doesn't show how colonial legacies linger on, then I don't know what does. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, so the term curry really perpetuates our ignorance of Indian cuisine. Right. Maybe even legitimizes or facilitates it. Exactly. And I think what offers an interesting parallel is the word chop suey. Hmm. Yeah, so chop suey is like bastardized Cantonese for an assorted mix of leftovers sometimes. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. And so this this term was invented by 19th century Americans to describe Chinese immigrant cooking. And by the 1920s, this term had exploded in popularity, and basically all Chinese restaurants in the U.S. were called chop suey houses. But over time, this term died out. Not so much because it was insensitive, but because as people started eating more Chinese food, it just wasn't specific enough. So the question is... Why has this not happened for the word curry when I think it's just as bad? I don't know. When will Indian food move beyond the word curry? I don't know the answer, but it's the question we should be asking. Well, I don't know when, but I do know how. Hmm. So, dear listeners, I'll now turn to you and implore you. If you use the word curry, please know what you mean when you say it, and let it be something that you use to sharpen your vision of the world and not muddy it any further. Ah. The only way to improve that conclusion was adding the phrase in conclusion. You know? <laughs> <laughs>
how am I to know where we are if we're about to? Uh, I, I want to ready myself for the end of the podcast. <laughs> Prepare myself emotionally.